Chapter 18 of The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Mollett Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Several days elapsed before Paris sank again into a state of deceptive, transitory quietude, and the blood of her children was washed from her flagstones ere long to be crimsoned anew with homicidal stain. The delicately reared Honorine was completely prostrated by the shock her nervous system had sustained, and the long swoon which ensued. The effects of exhaustion and excitement upon Sylvie were merely temporary, but her parents were unwilling to allow her to venture forth. Her last brave act of devotion had doubly endeared her to Mademoiselle de Saint-Amar, who pined for her society and fretted herself into a fever because she was separated from her. These two young maidens were bound to each other by ties as strong as though kindred blood sent its glowing current through their veins and brought their hearts into responsive pulsation. An internal recognition of kinship revealed each to the other as a sister in spirit. Let men jeer at the friendship of women as they will. There are rich feminine natures whose tender attachment to one of their own sex is as potent, as enduring, as indispensable to happiness as the love that binds them in holy bondage to man. Honorine and Sylvie belong to this class of beings. The attentions of Dr. Sylvestre had become so marked that Sylvie, without distinctly regarding him as a lover, began to experience an unwanted embarrassment in his presence. He had never framed his passion into definite language. He had only told Sylvie how tenderly she would be remembered by him during her absence, how earnestly he hoped not to be forgotten by her. What right had she to take it for granted that he meant to pay her the highest compliment a man can offer, and to crush his hopes by the intimation that it would not be acceptable? The increasing awkwardness of her position towards him caused her to rejoice when, one evening, Maître Bourgeau unexpectedly brought the intelligence that the plans of Monsieur Legrand were completed, and that he and his company would leave for England in a couple of days. Sylvie could not depart without bidding adieu to Honorine, who was still confined to the house by indisposition. It was with no little difficulty that Monsieur and Madame de la Roche were persuaded to allow their daughter to transverse the streets, even in a closed carriage, and under the protection of Maître Beaujol. When they finally consented, it was with a stipulation that she would not be absent more than a couple of hours. Sylvie regarded punctuality as one of the highest virtues, and, after her promise was given, her mother knew that she would return upon the very stroke of the appointed hour. Maître Bouchot and his pupil found Honorine lying upon a couch in her boudoir, looking very pale and feeble. Her brother sat beside her, reading aloud, in the hope of whiling away hours rendered tedious by her nervous and impatience of restraint. As he rose to greet the welcome visitors, the last words he had uttered to Sylvie, I owe you my sister's life, 
how gladly I would devote to you my own, if you would accept so poor a gift, rang in her ears. She tried to persuade herself that they were spoken in the excitement of the moment, that they conveyed no meaning beyond an expression of deep gratitude, that they had been forgotten as soon as they fell from his lips. Still, they sounded like a haunting melody, and she could not shut them out. The coldness and reserve she had of late so successfully assumed gave way to uncontrollable agitation, and it was well that, in bending over Honorine, her conscious face was hidden, and her emotion concealed, or attributable to anxiety for her friend. Unable to regain her self-possession, Sylvie could not summon courage to apprise Honorine that she had come to bid her adieu until, glancing at the clock, she found it was nearly time to return home. She rose hurriedly and wrote upon her tablets, "'Tell her I cannot,' and handed them to Bougeot, who was talking with the Marquis. Bougeot, completely taken aback, blurted out the important information by asking, have you not told Mademoiselle de Saint-Amar, then, that we are to leave for England to-morrow? To-morrow? exclaimed the Marquis and his sister in the same breath. Honorine burst into a violent fit of weeping, a very unusual demonstration on her part, for she had shed few tears in her short and happy life. Sylvie, distressed beyond measure, glanced up imploringly at Bourgeot, as though to petition him to try to pacify her. The Marquis comprehended the look, and probably deeming the musician incompetent to such a task, seated himself beside his sister and said, Why, Honorine, you have not remembered the new pleasure in store for you. Think how much you will enjoy corresponding with Mademoiselle Sylvie. I expect to find you marring paper in the most indefatigable manner. Honorine smiled through her tears and sobbed out, "'You will write to me, Sylvie, will you not?' Sylvie traced the word often upon her tablets. "'And you will bring her back very soon, Monsieur Bouchot, will you not?' asked the weeping girl. "'As soon as you can send us word that France is sufficiently peaceful and prosperous to welcome her singing birds back,' replied Bouchot. Sylvie pointed to the clock, and, wiping away the tears that still sparkled upon Honorine's lashes, embraced her fervently, gently unclasped the hands that clung about her own neck, bowed to the Marquis, and was out of the room before Maître Bougeot could make his adieu. The host followed and handed her into the carriage, but his lips were mute as hers. The next morning, Ursule and Sylvie, Maître Bougeot and his new valet, Mathieu, were on their way to London. A few days more, and Sylvie's parents and her devoted friend were gladdened by letters. The travellers had arrived in safety. The company of Monsieur Legrand was on the eve of its first dreaded appearance before a coldly critical English audience. The next letter was from Ursule, and gave an account of Sylvie's brilliant debut, and of the impression made by Maître Bougeot's performance of Paganini's wonderful witch dance. This epistle was rapidly succeeded by others of the same character. The youthful songstress soared at once to a high pinnacle. 
the very singularity of her affliction enlisted unwanted interest doubled her attraction and gave transcendent value to her gift she was styled the mute singer and the title itself piqued curiosity and encompassed her with a mystery-loving crowd of worshippers with mingled humility and gratitude she wrote her mother that not out of her talents but of her trial had sprung her sudden prosperity and that she was daily more and more convinced that she owed the favour of the public in large degree to the peculiarity of her privation as much to the power lost as to the power preserved ursule's letter were of a more gossiping character than those of sylvie they were fuller of pleasant details and minute descriptions of passing events but for them sylvie's parents might not have known the industry with which their daughter was prosecuting studies unallied with those of her profession nor of the attention she received from distinguished sources nor of the admirers who murmured at her unresponsive insensibility nor of maitre bougeot's vexation at the persecution of some determined suitors nor of the summary manner in which he extinguished their aspirations sylvie in her letters never touched upon these subjects and wrote little of herself she described the places they visited and often dwelt upon the books she read but always spoke briefly of her public appearances and the tokens of approbation lavished upon her honorine often visited madame de la roche accompanied by her brother and it soon became a matter of course for them to peruse ursule's letters as well as those of sylvie to her parents dr Sylvestre was also a frequent guest in the rue d'angluine and the privilege of reading the letters of the travellers was accorded to him also the marquis not only made the acquaintance of the young physician whom he regarded as sylvie's future husband but by his patronage and friendship was instrumental in greatly extending his practice and placing him in an enviable social position one which the nobleman believed sylvie would hereafter share and sharing would assuredly grace before long the health of monsieur de la roche was sufficiently restored for him to enter upon his duties as secretary to count de Moreau. the count was the possessor of large estates in different parts of france and his secretary had the charge of all his correspondence in regard to this property everard de la roche although he fully appreciated we may say gloried in the importance of his new office discharged his duties with a punctuality and prudence which could hardly have been expected from one who had passed his life in pursuing phantoms but the severe lessons taught him through the misfortunes he had brought upon himself by his sanguine restlessness had disciplined his mind to distinguish and resist tempting shadows and cling to sober substance the tree all blossoms and leaves was bearing wholesome fruit at last month followed month and paris in spite of its provisional government its insipid republicanism was not in a sufficiently settled state for monsieur legrand to deem return desirable besides this the success of his company in great britain was unabated it was now november 
and the corps of Monsieur Legrand, after making the tour of England, Scotland, and Ireland, came back to London to embark for Hamburg, with the intention of visiting Germany. The year for which the young vocalist was engaged had nearly expired before the leader announced that he proposed to return to Paris. The affection Bougeot and Ursule experienced for Sylvie had not only steadily increased, but their mutual attraction to that magnetic center had drawn them towards each other. When they were forced to contemplate resuming the olden routine of their existence in Paris, Bougeot thought with a sigh of his lonely bachelor life. His mother had died during his absence, and began to reflect that, painful as separation from Sylvie would be, he would miss even more his daily intercourse with Ursule, his pleasant chats with her, the little attentions which it seemed natural for each other to pay to or receive from the other. Then he gravely asked himself whether it was absolutely needful that this separation should take place. He had no sooner propounded that important question to himself than, without preface, premeditation, or ceremony, he asked it of her. Why should we two separate? I see no reason that renders it imperative. Do you see any? he asked abruptly. Ursule was too amazed to reply. Bougeot repeated the question in an authoritative voice, as though commanding an answer. His tone startled Ursule into a laconic, uh, No. That's right. I like a direct answer. And I like it all the better for being short, continued Bougeot. We two have had many happy hours together during the last year. I enjoy your society. You do not seem to dislike mine. Do you think you would necessarily tire of me if you had more of my company? The no this time was given more promptly, as if there could be a lack of courtesy in hesitation. Soon after we reach Paris, then, I will look out for lodgings that will suit both. I never purchased a piece of jewelry in my life, but I mean to buy a wedding ring. If you will promise to let me put it upon your finger, will you? This time, Ursule varied her negatives by an affirmative, but she did not add another word. I thought you would say yes, or I would not have asked you, replied Bougeot diving his fingers into his snuff-box as eagerly as though he expected to find the proposed wedding ring at its bottom. Then he added, without any attempt at playing the lover, I confess I am glad not to be mistaken in supposing that you did not dislike me, rough and crabbed as I am. I hope you are glad that I broached the subject of our remaining together. Now, as we have neither father nor mother nor relatives nor anyone to care for us but sylvie let us dutifully ask her consent sylvie very merrily expressed her approval of the anticipated union and delighted ursule by begging to be allowed to officiate as bridesmaid for ursule at her time of life 
to trust her happiness in the hands of one so continually irascible and domineering as Rougeau may seem a venturesome step, but there is a class of women who positively enjoy being ruled. Of course, they deny it to themselves and to others, but a loving tyrant is always their hero. Then Maitre Bougeot's temper was by no means as violent as when we first made his acquaintance. It had been calmed down by the tenderness developed in his intercourse with Sylvie, by the compassionate gentleness which her patient sufferings and humble endurance of bitter disappointments inspired, by the softening influence of her example upon his character. End of chapter 18.